You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord, we see thy cross there. Teach our heart to cling. O let us seek thee, and O let us find. Holy Spirit, we ask that you descend upon us and make our heart an altar and thy love a flame. Amen. We're looking at David and Goliath today. Do you feel small? God wants to make you like David. You just need to have enough faith to stand up and say before others, here I am, I'll fight. God is looking for small volunteers with big faith. Do you feel weak? You just need to have enough faith to say, I don't need no armor. God's got my back because God is looking for weak soldiers that he can make strong. Are there giants in your life that you're facing right now? God wants to make you a conqueror like David. You just need to have enough faith to gather up those smooth stones and sling one across the field. Okay, so everything I've said up to you, said to you up to this point is total baloney. Total baloney. But sometimes, especially if you've grown up in the church and heard the heroic story of David and Goliath, this is the message we've heard. With God, you, like David, can conquer giants. You just need to have enough faith. You see, this is what happens when we reduce the Old Testament to moralistic stories and characters that we're supposed to emulate. We turn books like 1 Samuel into something like a Christian version of Aesop's fables. But that's not what's going on here. Because our hope today is to let this text preach to us and do a little spiritual open heart surgery. But before we get there, we need to investigate this text a little bit. Last week we read and Doug preached on God's rejection of Saul as king and selection of David as Saul's successor. Samuel anoints David as king and now if we're tracking with the narrative, here's what we'd expect at this point. The prophet has anointed the king. Next step, Saul is removed, and David takes his throne and begins his rule, but this doesn't happen. In fact, the rest of 1 Samuel, all 16 chapters, chronicles the struggle between Saul and David. David's anointed king in chapter 16, but he doesn't really get his kingship until much, much later, and we have to ask, why? The David and Goliath story is part of the answer. You see, after David is anointed, we'd expect the next chapter to be some kind of wrap-up of Saul and something like a coronation ceremony for King David. I mean, when a king's anointed, he's God's choice. And if God chooses David, there's nothing left to do but, well, make him king, right? But that's not what happens. Instead of a coronation ceremony, we have a battle between someone who looks like an ancient Near Eastern version of the Incredible Hulk and scrawny little David who's described as young and with beautiful eyes. I mean, what is that about, right? So again, we're looking at a text 
that poses a question at the end of chapter 16 going into 17. The question will be on the mind of the reader and should be on our minds when David is anointed king and we move forward. And the question is, what kind of king will David be? Or we might turn the question around and ask, what is the nature of David's kingship? That's the question. And the answer that the text gives is David and Goliath. That's the nature of David's kingship. And in its broader biblical context, the David and Goliath story is serving not just to describe David's kingship, but the nature of God's kingship, God's kingdom. You know, we ask this question, what kind of God do we serve? What is his MO? And the text answers that question for us. And here's where we get to the heart of the story, just to get right to it. What is the nature of God's kingdom? What is God like? And how does God work? What is God's MO? This is the answer the Bible gives us. Victory through weakness. Victory through weakness. It's a theme that gets unfolded over and over again in 10,000 ways throughout the Bible. The theme of victory through weakness is like a snowball that keeps on building and building until it explodes in an avalanche at the base of the hill in the New Testament. I could cite example after example of this. A stammering Moses who ends up leading his people out of Egypt and into redemption, victory through weakness. An insignificant prostitute named Rahab who becomes the means through which Israel defeats Jericho and ultimately becomes the great-grandmother of David himself. Victory through weakness. A scared king, Jehoshaphat, who leads his people not into battle, but into singing praises while God routs his enemies. Victory through weakness. You know, my gut's telling me that as I say these words, victory through weakness, that the story has ended, and really the sermon has begun. Take, for instance, the nature of God's kingdom, and if it is victory through weakness, it gives us a different perspective on what is all too often the perpetrator of weakness in our lives, suffering. It's not an easy word to hear, but it's a true and biblical word that if God's MO is victory through weakness, And if for us hardened yet fragile humans, weakness is wrought through pain and suffering, then the problem of evil, though remaining an existential problem, we really do feel this, is far less a philosophical or theological problem. Here's what I mean. In other words, how can God allow for so much suffering in the world? Such an important question. And one of the Bible's true yet admittedly unsatisfying answers for us is that suffering is often the means through which God brings his kingdom in us and through us. And no, this doesn't make suffering any easier. But with the ears of faith, it becomes a strangely comforting word in the midst of suffering because your suffering is never, ever senseless. It's never, ever purposeless or haphazard. Our good, gracious, and sovereign God is working. Strangely, paradoxically, he's working. And he who began this good work in you will carry it on to completion. 
O sufferer, cling to the promises of God and his word when he urges you through tears in Romans to consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Victory through weakness. O beloved child of God, wait for it with patience. Victory through weakness also challenges our modes of thinking when it comes to our public faith. It challenges the commonly held idea that power is seized by being more powerful. Whether we're talking political, social, or economic power, you see power through strength. That's the default of the flesh. That's the way of the land. It characterizes the overwhelming majority of all national and global politics and social structures. But God says, that's all Goliath power. That's not real power. And my wife and my kids, we were sitting outside in Memphis, the Lorraine Motel, and we were reflecting on the life of Martin Luther King. And one of the greatest legacies that he left us was an ability to exposit this biblical truth of victory through weakness for the nation and for the world. It came out in his philosophy of nonviolent protest, and it bore itself out perhaps even more powerfully, ironically, in the fact that in his death, And since his death, we've heard more from him than we ever have before. Victory through weakness also gives us great hope for this odd moment in history that many people are calling post-Christendom. Christianity is becoming increasingly suspect. I mean, you saw the articles about New York's suspicion of Chick-fil-A's popping up in Manhattan, fearful maybe that as they're eating a sandwich that they end up pulling out a cross that they almost choked on with John 3.16 written on or something like that. You know, the church is becoming more and more marginalized in our culture, and I'm not equating Chick-fil-A with the church. God help me. We're losing our voice. We're losing our influence. So the question is, what if we lose our freedom to worship? What if the church loses its tax-exempt status in culture? What if the hostility toward Christian teaching and biblical values only gets more ratcheted up in our educational institutions? Is this a sign that God's not working among us? Victory through weakness tells us that maybe all this craziness isn't a sign of God's absence, but of God's presence. Remember the early church. Remember Tertullian, who said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Perhaps there is a yielding in store for the church in this regard, similar to David saying, you know what? We're not fooling anyone. This armor doesn't fit me. I can't use the world's conventional weapons of power if the power of God is going to be displayed here But victory through weakness also challenges us, not just publicly, but personally. I was reminded of this in a recent conversation with my wise friend, Gil Cracky, who not only lives in the world of ministry and church work, but counseling and psychotherapy. He shared with me several times a common technique or moment employed when an unreconciled couple is at a stalemate. There's never a breakthrough when one of them seeks to win the argument and vindicate their position. There's often a breakthrough, though, when one of those parties yields. 
Have you ever noticed how when you're in an argument with someone else, whenever you're tempted to be defensive, that if instead you yield, there's a strangely powerful disarming that occurs in that moment? You're right. I totally blew it. I am a miserable offender. I am the chief of sinners. And many times, suddenly, the weapons drop and the real conversation begins and the real heart comes out. Victory through weakness also brings significance to what would seem on face value in this world and through the church, insignificant work. I was blown away by this several months ago when our church organized a downtown work day. My kids and I take, ended up taking a tour of one of our ministry partners in the city, Brother Brian Mission. This little ministry, helping men get off the streets and out of addiction, seems like a drop in the bucket compared to the massive needs of our city, all the systemic problems all around us. And as I toured Brother Brian, I was thinking, gosh, God, we're really leaning into weakness here. And God whispered back, weakness is the only way my kingdom comes, Zach. And believe it or not, victory through weakness actually makes sense of what we do here and now too in weekly gathered worship, preaching, and sacraments. Really? God chooses to bring about his kingdom through a broken preacher like me and broken preachers like you? whose tongue stammers and whose language is imperfect and whose mode of communication speaking is far less tantalizing than all the communicative media out there right now, how can a single person in a pulpit hold a candle to movies and gaming and music and visual media, Snapchat, Netflix, Fortnite? Sermons are so blah, they're so boring. You're so weak. And sacraments, really? A little piece of bread, a little sip of wine, really? And God says, yes, really. This is how I change the world. This is how I create faith. This is how I sustain it. This is my MO. I give you my gospel in these very ordinary means. Little smooth stones in a leather pouch. A scrawny teenager with beautiful eyes, a pulpit, a table. These are my weapons, victory through weakness. This theme, victory through weakness, is why the prevailing picture of Christian boat growth and progress must not be one of good people getting better, but one of bad people coming to grips with just how bad we really are. Remember Paul at the height of his Christian maturity saying, I am the chief of sinners and crying out, wretched man that I am. Remember David himself at the height of his kingship basically saying the same thing in Psalm 51. Behold, I was born in iniquity. And it's why we say weekly in our liturgy, there is no health in us. This isn't hyperbole, folks. This is Christian realism. A true Christian has a keen awareness of and sensitivity to their own sin and their own brokenness. In fact, the mature Christians that I know are so overwhelmed by their own brokenness that they really struggle to find any time 
to offer judgment on other people and their problems and their issues. You know, because of the new Mr. Rogers documentary being released, our culture is revisiting the life and recordings and interviews of this departed legend. The Weekender chronicled one humble story that Fred Rogers once shared of when he was a young man, pretty newly married, and going to seminary, of all things. This, he says this, It was years ago, and my wife and I were worshiping in a little church with friends of ours. We were on vacation, and I was in the middle of my homiletics course at the time, which is a course on preaching. During the sermon, I kept ticking off every mistake that I thought the preacher, he must have been 80 years old, was making. When this interminable sermon was finally over, I turned to my friend, intending to say something critical of the sermon, and I stopped myself when I saw the tears running down her face. She whispered to me, he said exactly what I needed to hear. That was a seminal experience for me, Rogers said. I was judging, and she was needing, and the Holy Spirit responded to need not to judgment. Oh, victory through weakness. So how do we know that this is God's MO? How do we know that young, ruddy David, standing over a defeated Goliath, is pointing us in this direction? It's because the whole thrust of the Bible is toward a man that one hymn writer would hail as great David's greater son. Jesus. Remember how I earlier talked about how the theme of God's victory through weakness was like a snowball that would explode at the bottom of a hill in the New Testament? Well, that snowball actually avalanches down from heaven to earth when God himself takes on flesh and voluntarily places himself on a cross for the sin of the world, for you and for me. God himself, the immortal one, dies for you. God himself, the sinless one, becomes sin for you. God himself, the one who does not forsake his people, becomes forsaken for you. God himself, the unrivaled, undefeated one, is defeated by his enemies, sin, death, the flesh, and the devil for you. Behold the conquering king hanging on a cross. There is his victory, and there is your victory, conquering by defeat, winning by losing, victory through weakness. I can't get past this statement by Augustine in his Confessions. He became both victor and victim, and victor because he was the victim. For us, he was both priest and sacrifice, and priest because he was the sacrifice. How will you respond this day to the victim who became victor? Will you in strength hold him at arm's length Or do you recognize today that you are the weak one who needs the one who became all weakness for you? Throw yourself today afresh on the mercies of great David's greater son 
And as you hail the Lord's anointed son, wait with patience and watch, for he must win the battle, and he will finish his work. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.